She was a woman much ahead of her time. And while we wouldn't call her a feminist today, she sought to advance the position of women in the late 18th and early 19th centuries in ways which were very much counter to the social norms of the time. Ways based upon being like Jesus. She did become one of the most learned women of her time. She won fame as a dramatist, a poet, a novelist, a writer on moral, educational, and religious subjects. And she gained access to the elites of society and helped to effect a social change that has had a lasting effect on society. And she did this while writing a Jesus story that was very countercultural. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Jesus Stories. This is the podcast which tells the stories of people who follow Jesus and write their own Jesus story. I'm George Taylor, your storyteller. These podcasts come to you because of your prayer, your financial support. Thank you for all of that. And if you'd like to join those who back us, just visit our website to find out more. Go to JesusStories.info, click on the Support This Podcast tab. That's JesusStories.info. Do you have or you know of a Jesus story that maybe needs to be told, a testimony? If so contact me. Visit JesusStories.info, click on the Talk to Us tab to find out the ways which you can use to communicate with me. And again, that's JesusStories.info. Tell me the story of Jesus, write all my heart every word. Tell me the story most prayer. The life of our Jesus Story Lady begins in 1745 in a four-room cottage in western England near Bristol. She was the fourth of five girls, all educated at home, even though their father was a schoolmaster. Most girls received little, if any, education at all at that time. Such was not the case for this set of sisters. Our girl was exceptionally bright. At the age of three, she could recite her catechism. At the age of four, she was reading and writing. And how she loved to write. Her birthday present requests as a girl? Writing paper. Writing paper was scarce, it was expensive, and she was endlessly writing poems and essays. She'd often imbue her writings with a moral bent. Her older sisters opened a school where our young lady became a student at the age of 13, but by the age of 16, she was teaching at the school. And besides teaching, this vivacious 16-year-old was befriending some well-known people of the society of the time. At the age of 18, she had written her first play for the girls at the school. Yes, it was entertaining, but it also carried the moral sense which imbues her work. This was not the type of play which was popular at the time, by the way, but it was entirely appropriate for her students to perform. It's 1767. She's 22 now. The Theatre Royal opens in Bristol. With student ties to the theatre, outings to this theatre were common for Our Lady's students. So he becomes close friends with the theatre's manager, who was a star on the London stage. 
A year later, she visits the estate of a wealthy man, a cousin, to two of her students. And she and her sister would join those students at times at the estate. It wasn't long before the master of the estate, some 20 years her senior, proposes marriage, to which she accepts. Life changes for her. Now she is to become a lady. She begins preparing for this life among the rich and the elites of her day. But the wedding never happened. Her fiancé would set and then break the date for the nuptials three times. Finally, she broke off the engagement. Her fiancé provided a generous stipend on which to live is compensation for his lack of backbone, enough that she could concentrate on her writing. 1774, she's 29 years old. She visits London for the very first time. She took in the cultural, historical, and literary sites. She befriended the best-known actor on the London stage. He was also the manager of London's Theatre Royal. This friendship opened doors for her into London society. Remember, this is the poor daughter of a schoolteacher from Bristol. She's now enjoying the company of the great cultural figures of the day, the upper crust of London society. Also in 1774, her plays begin to be published. In 1777, the Covent Garden Theatre staged one of her plays to great acclaim and success. Two years later, they staged another play, but this one was tainted with unfounded charges of plagiarism, and this conflict caused her to cease playwriting altogether. Now, it was during this time that her faith in Jesus and her moral bent were less obvious than they would become. But they were a part of who she was, how she viewed the world, what she wrote, and while the elites of London were not serious about faith, she nevertheless accepted and loved them anyway. With the troubles over her last play, Our Lady begins a time of transition. She slowly withdraws from London and the fast life she had been a part of for the past five years. Her faith begins to take a more central role in her life. She became increasingly disenchanted with the trappings of high society and turned more fully toward the Christian faith she had assumed all her life, but not embraced with full intention. This transition really began with the reading of a book by John Newton. Now, you probably know his name and maybe even his story. He was a former slave ship captain who embraced Jesus, giving up the slave trade. Today, he's most commonly known as penning the favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton's book, Cardiphonia, caused Our Lady to write this. There is in it much vital religion and much of the experience of a good Christian who feels and laments his own imperfections and weaknesses. To give up the theater was no small feat for her. She looked back on her years in London and lamented the pointlessness of much of what passed for life in London society. She did not turn her back on her writing. She knew the power of literature and understood that the culture of the day was more influenced by the arts than by legislation, not too differently from today. And like today, she received pushback 
from those who thought that the marriage of arts with Christian beliefs were to be mixing things of the world with the things of Jehovah God. This didn't dissuade her. However, I hope the poets and painters will at last bring the Bible into fashion, she said. In 1787, Our Lady met two of the great reformers in English history. She actually met John Newton, whom we've just mentioned before, and William Wilberforce. Now, we've talked about Wilberforce in a previous Jesus Stories episode. That's episode three of this third season of Jesus Stories. I encourage you to go back and listen. Newton had a profound effect on Wilberforce in helping him to abolish the slave trade in England by encouraging him to remain in politics to effect legislative change from the inside. It was in 1787 that Our Lady met John Newton, and he helped to strengthen her faith. She also met Wilberforce. She wrote about that. That young man's character is one of the most extraordinary I have ever known for talent, virtue, and piety. It's difficult not to grow better and wiser every time one converses with him. In 1788, Wilberforce decided it was time to bring a bill to Parliament to abolish the slave trade. Our Lady began working on a poem entitled Slavery to help sway public opinion and influence the voting on Wilberforce's bill. So the abolitionist movement was pushing not only in Parliament for a legal end to slavery, but also to sway the public to understand the wrong and the horrors of this trade. Her poem helped the average Briton to see the humanity of the African peoples for a first time. Most had seen the slave trade in an abstract way, an economic way. Now they could see the human side, the suffering, the infants and children being torn from their mothers. This led to hundreds of thousands of signatures on petitions against the slave trade, which were brought to Parliament and swayed its members to vote ultimately against the practice. Our Lady's view of the world also saw other evils in society, too. Many Britons thought of themselves as Christians, but in practice, they were pagans or agnostics. Church was a formality. There was no faith, no Jesus in their lives. So Our Lady wrote a book, Thoughts on the Importance and Manner of the Great to General Society. Now, it was understood that the actions of the elite affected the actions of the lower classes. So the goal was to make goodness fashionable. And in her writing, she compared the elites to Christ's betrayer, Judas. <laughs> Pretty strong stuff. But due to her writing capabilities and her reputation, she could speak strongly and still be accepted. But there were changes afoot across the channel which would affect England. The French Revolution resulted in the streets running red with French blood, and many of the ideas from France were beginning to be felt in England, too. Our Lady was encouraged to use her writing gift to counter those ideas, so she created a pamphlet entitled Village Politics, published it under a pseudonym, and addressed the mechanics, journeymen, and laborers in Great Britain. But Everyone wanted to read this pamphlet. It was credited with the prevention of revolution on English soil. In 1795, the success of village politics was encouragement to continue 
writing tracks. Now, using novels, stories, and songs, Thomas Paine wrote tracks which sought to undermine religious establishments and good government. Our Lady's tracks were written to counter Paine's ideas. They advised the poor in ingeniously homely language to cultivate the virtues of sobriety and industry, to trust in God and in the kindness of the gentry. They were also written to awaken the middle and lower classes to the humanity of the African population. A friend helped to subsidize the tracks so that they could be sold below the prices of other tracks, in fact, below cost. And within a year, she had sold over two million copies. One of Our Lady's greatest ministerial achievements came because of a visit from Wilberforce and his sister to her home. Nearby Cheddar Gorge was known for its beauty. Wilberforce made an excursion to the site and discovered the poverty of the villagers there. He proposed to Our Lady and her sister a solution. If they would help those villagers, he would cover the expense. Our Lady believed education to be a key to breaking the poverty in which these villagers were trapped. So she opened schools to train up the lower classes to habits of industry and piety. And yes, part of the curriculum for these schools would be in the scriptures. They were known as Sunday schools because they were taught on Sunday, the day which was an off day for these workers. First, she had to persuade the villagers to send their children to these schools. There was opposition to that, and also opposition from the wealthy and influential in the area. They were afraid that such an education would lead to an uprising like the one in France. But she needed their support, so she visited those opposed to solicit their support, and she was successful. In time, there were 300 children attending Sunday schools in Cheddar. Within a decade, 12 more schools had been set up. They added evening classes for adults and weekday classes for girls. And by the 1850s, 75% of all laboring class children under 15 were enrolled in Sunday schools. In addition, Our Lady and her sister distributed money, clothing, fuel, and food as prizes for their students in the schools, pensions for hardships, grants for communities suffering from economic hardships. 1799 comes around. Two large events occur in Our Lady's life. First, her book, Strictures on the Modern System of Female Education, was published. In this tome, Our Lady walks the line between regarding women as frivolous creatures of mere emotion and sentiment and the notion of women's rights. This was the first of three books which challenged many of the current practices in education by the British upper class. She insisted upon the inculcation of Christian principles. Morality could not be isolated from religion. And secondly, there was this painful episode known as the Blagden Controversy. At this time in England, there was a conflict in ideology between the Church of England and Methodism, the Christian branch established by the Wesley brothers. The Methodists believed in strong evangelical practices, making sure that one's life practices lined up with one's profession of belief. The Church of England was much more traditional and lax in this area. 
The Sunday schools Our Ladies had established were regarded, therefore, as seminaries of sedition. This controversy challenged her work with the poor villagers, and it actually diminished that effort. Into the 1800s, her writing continued, most of it moralistic. Her one and only novel was published anonymously in 1808, putting forth the idea that a marriage should be compassionate, based not on economic advantage or political prudence, but on personal compatibility, a radical idea for this day and time. In 1813, she assisted her friend Wilberforce in challenging how England should handle their trade with the East India Company. While England profited handsomely in this relationship, Wilberforce felt that it was England's obligation to help India. He wanted to have missionaries sent to the country to introduce education, better treatment of women, and other societal ideas to benefit the country, and that included Christianity. But this required a bill to be passed by Parliament. Our Lady wrote a letter anonymously to a newspaper arguing for the introduction of Christianity to India. This helped sway public opinion, and the bill was passed. Our Lady lost her sisters between 1813 and 1819. She still continued to write until her own death in 1833 at the age of 87. Just before her death, Parliament voted to abolish slavery throughout the British Empire, one of the great goals for her efforts in her life. So who was this lady? Well, her name is Hannah Moore. It's a name which I'd never heard before. I stumbled across a short biography of her. Ms. Moore's influence was felt in the society of England and the policies of its government. Her faith grew over time, and it was felt in the writings in which she espoused the inclusion of Jesus into society. In fact, one author concluded that Ms. Moore's writing influenced British society well into the era of Queen Victoria. Even today, in her native Bristol, one man says, this was a visionary and talented woman who understood the importance of a solid start in life for young people and how this will influence the impact they make on society in later years in a time when women were rarely afforded the opportunity to influence society. Hannah Moore wrote her own Jesus story in being Jesus and speaking up when she had the opportunity. It's something we can all learn from today. These Jesus stories come to you thanks to your support and your prayers. Thank you for that. You can find out how you can help by visiting with us on our website, jesusstories.info. Click on the support this podcast tab. And what about you? Do you have a Jesus story to tell? Do you know of a Jesus story that needs to be told? A testimony of God's love and grace for your life? I'd love to hear it. You could write to me by visiting our website, jesusstories.info. Click on the Talk to Us tab. 
Now, I usually put up a Jesus Story Extra to go with this Jesus Story episode, but this episode's not going to have such a uh, extra. I thought that I'd share some of Ms. Moore's writing with you, but it is written in a very 18th century style. It's dense to our ears, to our eyes of the 21st century, not to mention the fact that it is very difficult to even read aloud. So we're going to pass on a Jesus Story Extra this time. But I've got a new Jesus story for you next week, in two weeks rather. Join me then for the story of a bad politician who changed his ways. See you in two weeks. Sweet.